Food Talk with Mike Colomeco is brought to you by Cento at Cento.com, Colavita at Colavita.com, and Wines of Portugal at WinesofPortugal.com. This is Mike Edison, host of Art Senses of Seizures. You're listening to the Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, please visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Everybody, welcome. Food truck here. It's a hot and steamy day in New York City. Uh, feels like July, but it's getting close. That's why. Yeah, it's about 90 degrees out there and humid. And I drove in from the beach house today, and Manhattan wasn't a pretty sight in the in the windshield. It was covered with grit and twice breathed air, and it's just hot and nasty out there. But anyway, it's air conditioned here at Heritage Radio. Got a great show coming up today. A couple of different guests. We're going to go to the south of France in a minute and talk to one of the great pioneering winemakers down there, Gerard Bertrand. We have him on the phone. Uh, after that, we're going to talk about what's taking place this weekend in New York. I don't remember what year this is, the 12th or 13th Big, a- Big Apple Barbecue, um, which is a pretty amazing event. We covered it in, for TV a while back, and I know I did a piece for the radio years before that. It's pretty cool. So we've got uh, Daniel Vaughn, who is the heralded barbecue critic for Texas Monthly. We have Tim Love, restaurateur, barbecue guy, and these days also filling out really well in the TV space. He's got Restaurant Startup with uh, Joe Bastianich on CNBC, and Drew Robinson is on his way in. So they're going to talk about barbecue with me till the bottom of the hour, plus or minus a few minutes, and then we'll have Ryan Sutton in, and Ryan is one of the... um, Three kind of food critics of record for Eater, New York. Ryan kind of covers the high-end stuff, if I could parse it out that way. Robert Seitzman is another one of them. He's great, and he does the ethnic stuff like he always has always done so well. Um, and a shout-out to my boys that are opening up. I think they opened last night, Wild Air. It's 142 Ludlow Street. Same guys behind Contra. A great young restaurant team that's opening up kind of a more casual a la carte rather than prefix menu. Um, great wine list. I think mostly bio and organic wines. I'll find out. I'm going to go there tonight. I think a couple of winemakers are going to meet me there. We'll do that. Talk about that next week. But let's go, let's go to the south of France. Gerard Bertrand, do I have you? Do we have Gerard Bertrand? That's the question. Yes, I am. Sorry. <laughs> there we go. A slight delay. How are you, sir? I'm very well, and you, Mike? I'm very well. Thanks for holding. Sorry about that. And, and I know it's late by you. You're, what, six hours ahead? It's 10 o'clock at night? I was just a little north of you. I was in Alsace two weeks ago doing something for PBS there and met with uh, Umbrek and Ostertag, sort of those the bio guys of Alsace. So we'll, it's a great segue to have you on the phone. So talk a little bit about, if you would, um, I know your background, but let's not assume the audience here does. You started out, y- your dad was a winemaker. Am I, am I right in that? Yes, you know, I, I start. Uh, you know, I start now forty years ago, and uh, I start with my father when I was ten. Yeah. And he said to me, "You know, Gerard, you're lucky because you start very early, and when you will be fifty, you will have forty years of experience." 
and of course now I turned 50 a few months ago and I'm very happy because I have a, a long background about uh, the south of France uh, wines and as we have a fantastic diversity in the south of France including uh, varietal grapes and also uh, Appalachian wines, fortified wines, sparkling you know it's, uh, it takes time to understand the different terroirs from the south because we are the first region in the world and we have a fantastic diversity from the Roussillon side to the Languedoc side. It's an amazing region. You know I've toured down there oh, maybe half a dozen times, and you're right. I mean, the geography from Perpignan to Montpellier, from the ocean up into the Pyrenees, so many microclimates, and maybe one of the most exciting wine scenes in France in the last 20, 25 years. A lot of young vignerons came down there, I guess back in the 90s, because it was still somewhat affordable, you know, as opposed to Bordeaux or, or Burgundy. Um, but it's become one of the hotbeds. I think it's, if, correct me if I'm wrong, it's the largest wine-producing region in France for, for bio and organic, correct? Yes, you know, we, we are the leader, uh, ourselves, we are the leader in France place to make organic wines because we have a very good climate and also because even if we have some rain the day after we have some wind and this is a, a best the best region in this in france to make organic and biodynamic wines yes and you're right you're blessed with that you're blessed with the fact that nature's taken care you've got like an air conditioning unit it gets hot by day great swings in temperature from day to night let's talk about some of your vineyards because you a couple of years ago you had a jazz festival during the summer and i was there you have one vineyard i remember we climbed all the way up the top of a hill and then we, we could see the ocean from where we were talk about some of your parcels you're just outside of Nîmes, is that correct you know, we have, uh, at the end of the day, we have 11 different estates. 11 estates. From the, from the on side to the Languedoc, and we, we, we are in the best terroir from the south of France. We are in uh, La Clape, you know, in Chateau L'Hospitalet. That's Where it. we share together a glass of wine in the top of the hill. <laughs> just regarding the, the single vine of L'Hospitalitas. And L'Hospitalitas is a famous, uh, plot. And this is a place where, uh, where, where based the hospice of Narbonne in the 16th century. And we have, like this, we have a different terroir, and we have also a fantastic estate in, uh, close to Montpellier called the Chateau La Sauvageonne in the terroir of Terrasse du Larzac. And uh, we start at Sigalus Estate with uh, the biodynamic principle uh, 15 years ago, and we are also close to Limoux at Domaine de L'Aigle, and the family estate, the first one was based in, uh, it's based in, uh, in Corbière, in the terror of Boutenac, called the uh, Domaine de Villemajou. And now we just launched, uh, six months ago, the Clodora. Clodora, it's, uh, it's icon of the range and it's a fantastic wine where we produce, uh, biodynamic grapes. We use only animals. We use horses. We don't use any mechanical instruments. And, uh, this is a beautiful place in the middle of nowhere. And uh, we um, and we produce a, a fantastic wine made with Carignan, Grenache, Syrah, and Mourvedre. You've answered my next question, which is going to be one of the grape varietals. So you you went bio back in the late '90s, out of a lot of reasons. But talk a bit about that, because you you have a book. What's the, what's the title of your book, Gerard? I'm really bad with that sort of stuff. The book that you wrote a couple of years back. What's the title? Wine, Moon, and Stars. Because, of course, uh, you know, I, uh, 
I use myself homeopathic pills since uh, 28 years, and uh, I read the book of Rudolf Steiner 15 mm. years ago, mm. and it was like a revelation for me because uh, Steiner explained in the book in 1924 the connection between the cosmos and the earth and between the, the planets and the silica and the, and the, and the limestone in the, in the soil. And he explained the influence, a very strong also influence of the moon. And of course, I try to, 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 to converse the first estate called Sigalus to the biodynamic principle. And um, we, we use that for heroes from then. We were convinced because we have uh, discovered more freshness, more minerality in the wine, and also more vibrancy. And uh, now we are the leader in the world about biodynamic wines because we have 1,000 acres. And of course, for now, it's not anymore uh, technical. It's a philosophy of the company because I think it's very important to respect the future, the next generations, and also because. Uh, of course, the wine are more exciting now. Yeah, it's a really big movement here. I mean, I, I, I've watched it maybe 15 years ago. You'd, you'd have trouble finding uh, bio-organic wines in the New York market. And now there are stores that specialize exclusively in them. There are restaurants like Down by Me, Ten Bells on Broom Street. The entire list is bio. Um, you have... A, a whole generation of uh, sommeliers like uh, last week we had I don't know if you've met her Pascal, Pascaline Lapeltier she was at Rouge yeah. Tomat she's real uh, you know advocate of this always on her wine lists um, I had Le Giron on the radio a few months ago the British master of wine who's just, just put out a book and there really is like you said there's this sort of vibrancy to the wine it's a completely different style but we've really seen the public in really I think rushing to embrace Bio wines and appreciating them, what they are, how they change from glass to glass within the bottle, sometimes from bottle to bottle within the case. But you, so you, you have how many? One thousand hectares, and it's all bio. Now, one thousand acres, yes. And you know, I think it's very important for the consumer, but also for the wine lovers, to understand the difference between uh, conventional agriculture and uh, biodynamic principle. And also, it's very important for them to understand the, uh, the difference between the pleasure, the taste, the emotion, and also the message. Because wine is not only a beverage. Wine is uh, a multidimensional product. And of course, for me, the challenge, of course, is to deliver the message of the terroir in the glass of wine. And to uh, deliver the terroir, you need to, to work with by by organic or biodynamic principle because of course you can share the true reality of the terroir because you, your terroir is is alive you know and uh, this is crucial for the future and of course this is crucial also for the consumer and now i am very happy because uh, very a lot of uh, new generation of sommeliers are very well uh, inspired by uh, by the bi biodynamic wines. And to your point, I mean, I'm I'm lucky in, with with what I get to do in the space of writing and PBS, uh, the TV series that I get to travel to wine regions all the time, all the time to get to to walk the soil, to walk the vineyards, to meet the vineyard. And what you just said, I mean, when you're walking in fields that are organic and bio, the ground's alive. There's stuff growing everywhere. There's lots of life. 
on the ground, around the ground. There's birds flying. There's bugs moving around. There's just a vitality to it. And then when you look at kind of the traditional vineyards where they're spraying a lot, uh, where there's pesticide use that's heavy, where there's nitrogen in the soil. The soil's, I mean, it's just, there's grapes, nothing else is growing, and it almost seems dead. Sure. You know, it's, uh, this, is, uh, this is important for people to understand that, uh, you know, wine, it's, uh, it's something special. And, of course, you need to eat for a living, and you don't need to drink wine. If you drink wine, it's because you love the taste. And for a lot of people now, it's because they can feel the, the minerality, the freshness, and also it's very important because the biodynamic wines reinforce the potential of aging of the of bottle of wine. And of course, when you make fantastic wine, it's very important to drink the wine not in the next, not in the first ten years, but in the in the in the after twenty or thirty years. And the Grand Cru from Burgundy, from Bordeaux, and now from the Languedoc. They can deliver this message because the wine is still alive after 20 or 30 years. And at the end of the day, it's like the thing of song, uh, the, 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 the song of sting. You know, it's a message in the bottle. Well put. And unfortunately, I missed. You had a great, I think you had a lunch a couple of months ago at Restaurant Danielle that I was invited to by a couple of people, including yourself, and I was out of the country that particular week. But I really look forward to sitting down with you next time you're in the city. Let me know when you're here. We'll get you in the radio. We'll get you in the station on a microphone. And more importantly, let's get you uh, let's out to dinner and drink some of those vintage Gerard Bertrand wines. Um, it's been a pleasure having you on the radio. Again, my guest is Gerard Bertrand. The last name is B-E-R-T-R-A-N-D. You can find his wines from coast to coast. He is one of the preeminent bio-producers in the Languedoc-Roussillon and has been a champion for many, many years. Gerard, thanks so much. Thank you, Mike, and uh, read my book. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Have have your publisher send me a copy. I want to read your book. It's it's right up my alley. Thank you very much. Be well. Thank you. Bye-bye, Mike. Take care. Okay, so we're going to go from the south of France without any segues to... A great thing that's taking place here in New York that kind of reflects the south of this country in, 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 in the tradition of the great tradition of barbecue. Um, we have in studio all three guests. Everybody showed up. Um, Daniel Vaughn. Daniel, what's your title? So we do this right. I mean, you are the barbecue editor which, at Texas Monthly, which was huge. If you're in the space of food a couple of years ago when he got that gig, it was announced. I met him for the first time today. I said, man, you must have had a good bottle of bourbon that night. That must have been like score. You know, Absolutely. It's a great, 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 great honor to have you here. Thank you. Um, and Tim Love to my right. Restaurateur. Uh, big guy in the restaurant business. <laughs> now with the TV show, of course, you're becoming a... a um, a household brand that you and Mr. Bastianich with Restaurant Startup going into its third season? That's right, going into its third season. Good for you. Going into its third season, and you've been a restaurateur in Texas forever. Uh, yeah, 15 years uh, was the anniversary of my first restaurant on Tuesday. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Congratulations. That's a, a, a nice long run. Um, Drew Robinson, thank you. We haven't been introduced since I had a guy in France. Welcome yeah. to Food Talk. So yeah. t- anybody pick this up? So the the history, so... Danny opens Shake Shack back in the day, and New York being what it is, not Shake Shack, uh, uh, Blue Smoke, opens Blue Smoke, and New York being what it is, of course, everybody had an opinion, and you can't do, you can't do all these types of barbecue, it's not good, it's not Kansas City, it's not this, it's not that, and so Danny, being the consummate 
smart guy that he is decides, you know what, I can't, I can't please all these people. You know, he's been running these great restaurants for years. I'm going to have this thing. I'm going to create this thing called the Big Apple Park on my block. And it started, I forget how many years ago, with maybe six or seven pit masters. I remember it rained. It was, it was not yeah, an easy weekend. It was 13 years ago. You were here? Uh, I was not here, but I know it was 13 years ago. Yeah, it was ago, 13 yeah. years ago, and it rained, and it was, but people came, and it grew from that. So 13 years later, what's happening in the city as we speak this whole week is crews are coming from all around the country. The best. I don't know who curates this list for, I, I don't think Danny's as involved as he once was, but I'll leave that to the powers to be as to who's doing it. But it's just some of the biggest names in barbecue bring in their pits through the tunnel, bring in their wood, bring in their fuel. Uh, so if you go to the park, like, what's tonight? Thursday. Yeah, if you go tomorrow night, it's eerie. It's quiet. It's weird. It's all this smoke rising up in the air. No traffic around you because they shut it all off. Um, yeah, don't be alarmed if you're walking around the area and see yeah, smoke. And, Nothing, nothing's on fire yeah. except the wood that they're going to cook with. Yeah. And, and you, legally, you, we're not allowed to bring fuel through the tunnels. So just a saying. Fuel as in... <laughs> Just a joke. Yeah, yeah, you're not supposed to. But I mean, you guys bring it. I mean, you're bringing your own wood and stuff like that. I mean, some of the guys are, right? Totally. Oh, yeah, yeah a bunch of them. I remember. I think Rodney Strong is that his name? The chap that makes his own, does his own charcoal from big. Yeah, trucks. Rodney Scott was here Rodney last Scott, year. Rodney Scott, sorry. Yeah. And yeah, I helped uh, pile up a big dump truck load of wood for Skylight Inn. They're coming in from Aiden, North Carolina. They were here uh, a few years ago. I had them on the radio a couple years ago. Yep. And then again this year. And yeah, the the guy came by to to drop off the wood that they were going to be using to to turn into coals and just dumped it right in the middle of the street and then was like, all right, you guys got to get this out of the way. (laughs) Very New York. That's great. Get your gloves on and get to work. Yeah, that's kind of how it works. Um Let's just go around the room so you guys can introduce yourselves, um, if, if you don't mind. So you'll, you'll do a better job than I. Um, Drew, talk about where you're from and what got you into barbecue. Um, I'm from Alabama originally, and um, the company that I'm with is Geminix Barbecue. Um, so I'm the pitmaster chef, um, but have, you know, what, what we do is Alabama-style barbecue, which is really, um, if you distill it down into one thing, typically pulled pork but for the purposes of the block party um we uh, smoke our pork hot links and um you know i mean daniel can speak to hot links and cheese out in texas and Mm -hmm. you know the way that we sort of Mm -hmm. twist that up for the block party at jim and nick's is that we take pork rather than beef um put it with pimento cheese rather than a slab of cheddar um, you know, we've got some hot peppers and barbecue sauce, and uh, you, you put that on a saltine cracker, and it's sort of, um, you know, translated down into uh, to, to, to the same concept uh, in Alabama barbecue. And that's, you know, that's Jim and Nick's representation at the Big Apple Block Party. Welcome. Welcome. Your first? Uh, I th- uh, actually, we, we weren't here last year, but I think in total, and I may not be remembering right, but I think it's our 10th. Okay. So, yeah. so you guys have been kind of pioneers yeah. with us. Yeah. Um, Which, by the way, I want to say that the, the sausage and the pimento cheese that they serve, they thought about doing something different this year, and we were we were a little bit uh, we were pretty headstrong about the fact. <laughs> we, that yeah, we got a big pushback. We're like, we're like, wow, like no, yeah, actually yeah. not. Let's just do the stuff that everybody goes crazy over, which is the sausage of the pimento cheese. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, we, we we you know we we appreciate the love for yeah. sure. Yeah. Well, I know last year when you weren't here, there were a lot of people missing it. So a lot, uh, well, a lot of comments we, about where that. Yeah, went. we we missed it too. It was uh, it was uh, unfortunate happenstance, but we uh, but we're happy to be back. So. 
Yeah, it's something. It's really something. I mean, it's uh, these sort of food festival weekends. I've always been a bit skeptical about them. They're hard to pull off logistically, but somehow barbecue, barbecue kind of lends itself to this because it starts the night before. It's slow cooking. Like I said, these guys um, and gals, too, will have their... Have their rig set up by tomorrow. They'll have protein on smoke by tomorrow night as the sun's going down. And it's like, it's like a party there. I mean, I remember going there one night at like 11, 12 o'clock, and there was stuff going on. That's in there. just getting started, yeah, 11, that, 12 o'clock. That was when the moonshine was coming out. <laughs> and the, it, it, It's fun. Talk about that. I mean, you, you talk about what you've done because you, you cover barbecue, and you're for Texas Monthly. But talk right. about, like, just back up the lens a little bit on Texas barbecue specifically. Well, you know, Texas barbecue is uh, such variation. I think most people outside the state think of Texas barbecue as, you know, a slice of brisket on butcher paper. But that, that's really just part of Texas barbecue. That's central Texas style. There's, there's so much variation across the state, whether it's, uh, you know, beefhead barbacoa down in the south and cabrito. Uh, there's a lot of pork barbecue in the eastern part of the state. Uh, you go over into the hill country and you're uh, just as likely to find some mutton and some goat as well. So there's so much variation, but so I love to travel around Texas and see how that barbecue changes. I also love to travel around the country and, and try out all these different styles. I think what's so cool about the block party is that, you know, you talked about these different food festivals and you can go to barbecue food festivals all over the country, right? But generally, uh, they're going to be focusing on one style of barbecue. Mm. So, you know, we have ours for Texas Monthly. You can go to, to Lexington, North Carolina, to the barbecue festival there. But you're, you're only going to get Carolina-style barbecue there. Here at the Block Party, it's one place where you can show up and get literally every style of barbecue, really, that's out there. And I, I have to give everybody advice if, if you're going to attend. and If you're not, I don't know why. If you're around New York and you stuck up about it either. Yeah, well, this yeah. is nice, too, because it's not a competition, so it's like there's all this great camaraderie. Everybody knows everybody. A lot of these guys are used to sort of competing with each other well, at other events. And a lot of people see this as kind of their family reunion. Like, yeah. they come to, get to come back together to people that they know from Tennessee or the Carolinas or Texas, Alabama. But if you're a consumer coming to this thing, pace yourself, because it's... <laughs> I, mean, I went with my son last year, and we were there right as, as it opened up on Saturday, and by 12.30, I was done. I was yeah, back. you got two whole days to stretch it out. <laughs> you, so. And you kind of want to. You kind of want to go from... Stand, to Take a walk, pace yourself out. Um, but that's interesting. See, I, I think so much of New York is... What do we know about barbecue, really? And it's only the last... Well, a lot more than you used to. That's, that's for, sure. for sure. I think when the block party started, it was seen as kind of this educational thing. Like, let's bring all these styles of barbecue yeah. in so we can teach the new yorkers like what real barbecue is and and now you've got a lot of new yorkers who are who are on the uh who are on the docket here who are going to be cooking barbecue for this so and it's a huge turnaround and it's funny because i know so many like you know white tablecloth big name three-star fancy pants chefs who love barbecue they're just i mean you know shane mcbride who's the chef at balthazar actually for all of mcnally's restaurants is going to be with big bob gibson he is every time bob comes yeah. to town he does shane goes down to memphis and may um and he's not the i mean i've seen other new york chefs that i've recognized like why what do you think that is tim what is what is just something primordial about that well there's certainly something like you said primordial about it but the, the thing is that you know when when you when you're a cook like myself the, the things that that you like the most are is watching flavor develop in different types of food and in barbecue you get to see that happen constantly throughout time and just one singular piece of meat so it's very intriguing to chefs who who don't really experience that often to come in and be able to be a part of it because like oh my gosh you can taste it now and taste it later and, and the dynamic of how it develops just through time and temperature is a big deal and so and cooking at the block party which makes it so great is is 
you know, like Daniel mentioned, is there's so many different styles of food, yet it's the same food. And you don't get that very often in cooking, right? With pasta, everybody, you cook pasta, it's still pasta. Like, even though they put different sauce or a different style of adding something to it, it's still really, the, the basic of it is still that same pasta that's got to be very well cooked. Whereas in barbecue, there's thousands of different ways to cook a bunch of different cuts of meat. And so it's, it becomes this very centralized piece of cooking that has a thousand different ways to do it. So it's, it's intriguing to a lot of people who are involved in food. And, and intriguing, too, because I think, I mean, when I started cooking, I'm almost 60 now. So when I started, it was, you know, you went to the Culinary Institute, you did what you did, you learned French technique. But it was, you know, you sort of worked with open burners and ovens. And now we sort of moved into the whole geekdom of sous vide and combi ovens and molecular gastro, all that kind of. And there's just something about bar, it's, it's just, it's flame. Smoke, yeah. embers, and protein. Real cooking. Real cooking. The way it's, I mean, it's like not it a takes whole a lot, lot of change in hundreds of years of this tradition. Well, and with variables that are a whole lot harder to control than a thermostat on yeah. a sous vide bath. Right, than, than, <laughs> a, than a immersion bath, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the fact that you've got to... Uh, you got to know how to build a fire. Uh, you also have to know how to keep that fire going and how to, how to keep it going well so it's going to create the smoke that you want out of it. Talk about Alabama barbecue. So I, again, let's assume, and it's not an assumption. Let's just work on the assumption. I don't know a whole hell of a lot about barbecue. <laughs> I go to these things, and I love them, but I'm a New York kid. I'm originally from Philly. I've been here since 82, so I'm a chef. I know this city but and some of the barbecue. So talk about what what is Alabama barbecue? What informs it? Um, you know, I think that what Alabama barbecue is is essentially, I mean, you know, if you ask what the meat is, typically pork versus a you know right. versus a place like Texas. You know, if you go to Memphis, um, people are have this natural association in their mind with ribs. Um, you come to Alabama, and and people think um, pulled pork, and I think that's you know probably true for you know the southeastern part of the states, you know Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama, um, and Alabama does have pockets of of things that um are unique uh big bob gibson you just mentioned and uh what they've uh, what they did with white sauce um but i think overall you know when you when you look at alabama you look at pulled pork shoulder on on a on a bun and you've got uh you know a spicy vinegary tomato based sauce um and that's sort of like your everyday workman's sort of piece of barbecue i mean that's what alabama is and um you know, and, and, and it, you know, but I mean, it gets back to the fire and the smoke and the, you know, the, 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 the whole um, experience of the pit master and how that gets to the plate. I mean, there, there are pockets where you get ribs and there are pockets where you get other things. But, um, but you know, um, but that, that's, that, that's a, an essential part of it, along with, um, you know, what unites all of the barbecue world, which is really the, the fire and the pit master experience. Yeah, that's what it comes down to, doesn't it? Yeah, go, when I went to Tuscaloosa, a couple places there, Archibald's and Dreamland, and seeing those ribs get cooked. Oh, man, and, Archibald's. I mean, they've got these, like, yeah. They start out with these huge racks of spare ribs. Yeah. That, you know, in Texas, we're going to throw those on a smoker for six, seven hours. Yeah. And they've got this roaring fire of, oh, they're of, hot of hickory fast, running underneath yeah. that uh, spare rib. And what, they cook for out, maybe an hour, hour yeah, and 15 Yeah, minutes. They're, they're totally, they're hot and fast. And, um, and you know, and uh, the Archibald family is, I mean, I mean, we're great friends with them at Jim and Nick's. I mean, and that's, you know, I mean, another cool thing about barbecue is ultimately it is the community of people, um, which is what the Big Apple barbecue is 
all about all about you know so i mean but even even in our home territories you know it's still the community of people and um you know the archibald family for example i mean yeah i mean you know hot fast ribs over you know great coals it's like totally counterintuitive to what you um you know when you want to say i you know i cook low and slow over you know i mean it's like you know it doesn't always it's not always the same thing man it's not always the same experience so um you know yeah what they do is beautiful sometimes it's nice to get that char and some of those gnarly ends for sure yeah that's interesting. I had no idea. So that's, yeah, a, that's every, everybody's style. got a different voice, you know. I mean, it's kind of like barbecue, jazz music being the um, being the um, true music of of America. Barbecue is kind of the same thing, you know. Everybody's got their their own voice and their own way of expressing it, and then it's you know it's all beautiful. Well, I mean, in Alabama, how long is it going to take for you to drive from the beach up to Big Bob Gibson? I mean, that's. It's a lot of distance you're going to cover there. Six and a half hours. Yeah. Six and a half specifically, hours. Specifically, yeah. if, if you want specifics. Yeah. There's a, lo- <laughs> a lot of ways the barbecue can change in that distance, that's for sure. Yeah, for sure, man. Uh, a lot, you know. And Tim, what part? I mean, you, so you're, you're from Texas originally? Yes, sir. So culinary school training and kind of, was it fine? I mean, you were a restaurant guy that was kind of like fine dining. I, I mean, I've never been to culinary school. I've taught okay. at a bunch of them, but I've never been to any. doesn't matter to me. And... Um, yeah, I mean, I started out, I'm a big hunter, so my focus on pretty much everything I do is about wild game. And, um, you know, I got into fine dining first, and then um, I recently opened up a, a restaurant called Woodshed Smokehouse that's more actually focused on the wood than it is anything else. And we use different specific types of wood to cook different things, uh, depending on the protein or depending on the vegetable or depending on whatever it is. And at, at, at Big Apple, I'm serving lamb brisket. That was my next question. Yeah. So lamb brisket. It's fantastic. <laughs> it really is. And, and Tim is doing some really cool things at Woodshed by taking pieces of meat that aren't necessarily thought of as Texas barbecue, but is doing them, cooking them in the same way. So you can get this, what, big beef shin? Yeah, we do like a whole beef shank, which we started doing. I have a meat processor. It's right in the stockyards, obviously, where I live. And so... I go down there all the time, and every once in a while, I'll just watch them process the, the meats and just get ideas. I knew you were into meat, but you live in the stockyard. Yeah, I live in the stockyard. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's how it happens, yeah. And uh, same thing with vegetables. I try to treat vegetables just like meat and doing barbecue with you know slow-roasting whole heads of cauliflower like brisket and, yeah. and whole heads of cabbage into a, a, a ball of fire for you know an hour and then eating the centers of them, things like that. Have you been to Seamus Mullen's new place in, in the village? He's got this beautiful wood grill. Seamus yep. is a guy known for yeah, Spanish yeah. food, but he's really – and it's funny because another chef good friend of mine, Missy Robbins, who kind of blew up in New York when she took over Andrew Carmelini's outposts, the Tua Voce restaurant. Yep. So Missy, you think of as Italian and three-star and fine dining. She's opening up in Williamsburg, and one of the centerpieces of her restaurant is going to be wood, a wood pit. So everything's going to come off of that. So it's kind of like this return to basics again. One, one of my one of my favorite chefs in the city, um, he's under the radar. He's got a great restaurant on Elizabeth Street called Peasant Frankie DiCarlo. and that whole when he first opened up his restaurant, the, his only fuel was wood, and then he finally switched to saute station to gas because it was just too much of a pain in the ass to run the pasta station on wood because that's his station. But ninety percent of what comes out of that kitchen is either on a rotisserie, those Italian wood burning kind of like ovens with domes inside. I'm surprised at how much of that I'm seeing just going back to wood cooking, whether it's a, a barbecue place or not. I mean, you've got Speedy Romeo here in yep. Brooklyn. Yeah, and they're opening up down by me on Clinton Street yeah. too. Yep. I mean, they're all wood cooking. Uh, you go to Smoke in Dallas, and they've got the big hearth or Catonia yep. in San Francisco. 
uh, just seeing the big hearth cooking and the real focus on cooking with wood, I'm, I'm seeing that really all over the country now. It's funny because it's almost a blow. I mean, I'm not saying these, these are calls a relationship, but I mean, as far as sort of sous vide and molecular gastronomy and all those crazy starches and all the weird stuff people are playing with, at the same time, I think there's chefs that are just pushing back to getting well, that, that's simple I don't think, into the pool. I don't, I don't think people want to depart from um, finesse cooking, so to speak. You know, but I, but I think that people and even in Alabama where I'm from I mean it's you know and our, our dining scene in Birmingham is um, such a microcosm compared to a Manhattan uh, or a Brooklyn you know but but there's still you know uh, there's still a broad scope of what people want to see and they want that sort of finesse they want that sort of luxurious experience but at the same time they can't have that every night or, right. they, or they don't even want that every night they want something that's elemental and fundamental and they want to you know have something that takes their uh sensory experience in into a different direction you know and there's nothing nothing more primitive than fire that you know sort of invigorates your soul you know and you can still you know you can still have a glass of wine you can still you know have a beautiful meal but it it but that that fire that flame it ignites people you know in a different way than um what you're talking about with sous vide cooking and and the finesse cooking does but i think chefs too i mean to to your point i completely agree the public i mean you you don't want to eat tweezer food five nights a week and that's (laughs) kind of slower serve but i also think chefs kind of are kind of in the same way getting tired of overwrought plates and 22 ingredients and this and that and there's something about just playing with flames that we all about taking something that's so pure as just one piece of meat and deciding whether or not you can cook it perfectly that's really like a kid doesn't it yeah that's the and that the 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 lure of a fire as we all know they didn't put a yule log on the tv for no reason right i mean people just are, are attracted to fire and attracted to flames and attracted to that primitive way of cooking and the authenticity of it i think what most chefs you see are doing now and as you as you reach back and go to as we get to more and more local vegetables and more and more local proteins what really we're returning to is just authenticity of cooking which is getting back to having real fire well it's another way to impart flavor too i mean take that take a beautiful ribeye and put it on in a cast iron skillet on a gas burner and it's going to be fantastic but you take that same cast iron skillet and you stick it in the firebox you know, of your smoker. Two different stories. It's, yeah, yeah, it's a completely different flavor. Complete, you know, just adding more flavor, creating a creating different profiles that people are not used to. So, what's what's your gig like? Because I'm now. I mean, this is my, everyone listening out there that has a blog or wants to be a writer or whatever is going to just be drooling over this as the guy who's the Texas Monthly guy. So you're just getting paid to kind of travel around all over Texas and beyond to cover barbecue, right? Yeah, uh, the. The travel and yeah, I don't know and how the, that happened by the yeah, way. We, we, we all want to be Daniel. Yeah, yeah, thank way. you. It's it's my roots in Ohio. That's really what got me the gig. Uh, but yeah, I, I travel around, eat barbecue. Uh, they they pay me for the writing part. That's what I have to end up doing at the end of it. If it was all research, it'd be a whole lot easier. But no, it is a lot of fun, uh, especially when I come to New York and I'm able to to try a bunch of new places. Uh, you know. I, always set up itineraries for myself in texas and try to hit as many as i can i uh as many barbecue joints as i can here today it started off with pastrami 
Uh, with Robert Seitzman, that's great. And you went up to the Bronx rather than, I mean, the usual suspects. Let's go to the Katz's. Yeah, I, the I, guy I, at Mile End doing his version I, of smoked I, meat. I've been to Katz's. It's fantastic. Yeah. Mile End. I love the place. But I've been to those. Robert's been to those plenty of times. He, he's the one that turned me on to Liebman's and the fact that they smoke their own still. And I uh, I texted him when I, I landed today at LaGuardia at 1130, and I texted him. <laughs> and I said, we need to go to the Bronx and eat pastrami, and then we, we got to be back here at Roberta's. He's like, it's never going to happen. You're never going to make it. <laughs> it's like, we're going to make it. And we yeah. actually stopped at another deli on the way. So we made it. We made it with plenty of time. Committed foodies. I That's love how that. That's you do it. That's right. Yeah, well, cause... it's just like eating barbecue. You know, eating the eating two different pastramis together, you really understand why you liked one so much better or why uh, the, the you really are able to develop in your own mind the characteristics of the two that uh, that are good or bad. A lot easier when you can compare the two rather than, oh, I ate that one last week and now I'm eating this one. So it's kind of the same way I eat barbecue as well. If you eat it in bunches, you you learn a lot more about every one of the places along the way. So who else? Not not, not even good or bad though. I mean, but just sort of like, like, like yeah, just, just sort of like just sort of like conversationally, why one is this and one is that, and they're and they're both awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as long as they are, that's true. As um, long yeah, as, as long as they are, yeah. <laughs> because they, I mean, unfortunately, that I mean, pastrami corned beef have just become bastardized. It's like everything else, right? There's for every good one, well, and there's not a whole lot of them. There's just so much mediocre stuff out there. There's just there's only so much you can do with boar's head. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And even and, and it's funny because people have been shitting on Carnegie for years, and unfortunately, the place is in district. But the couple's getting divorced. But I remember, I've known the, the owners of Carnegie or the previous owner that he passed away. Wife married the schmuck that now is divorcing him. But anyway, another story. But Carnegie was serious. I mean, they are they they built a state of the art place out in Carlstadt, New Jersey, uh, in the Meadowlands, just for smoking and curing and all their baking. So at, at the core of Carnegie's whole menu was kind of worthless, but their pastrami back in the day was world-class stuff. And they were selling it to a lot of the places that were getting great reviews for that pastrami. It was Carnegie selling it to the Moles. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's New York's native barbecue. Yeah. You know, it's funny to go to hometown barbecue and they're uh, they're doing pastrami bacon, so it's like they're they're already mixing it up. They're taking that old pastrami and putting it with pork belly, doing and creating something that's completely different. And hometown and, and fantastic. He's the one in Red Hook. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I have not been yet. I've not been. Oh, you got to get over there. It's great. Get the beef rib. It's very good. Yes. So you guys have all been. You guys don't even live here. I feel terrible now. I just I don't get to Brooklyn enough. I've been three times. <laughs> well, you that's your job. Yeah. So who should we? You so, got me there. So I guess there's tickets still available for this thing. I don't know how it works. Well, Free? No, it's oh, not, you sh- man. It's just it's you show like, up and pay a, for the food. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a part. I mean, that's like okay. I don't, I don't want to steal Tim's thunder because he can rain in on this in a heartbeat but i mean it's like the biggest barbecue party in the entire country and it's it's, it's free and open by, all and by large margin like yeah it's, yeah and it's crazy the energy so you know new yorkers barbecue who knows i remember being there three years ago saturday before it opened and watching the line start to form it officially opens at 11 or 10 or something 11 o'clock 11 o'clock well by nine thirty, in front of some of these stands they're already queued up by the time the bell rings and the doors are open officially at 11 o'clock in in front of bob gibson in front of the popular I mean, there's yeah. 45 minute waits all day long in front of all the stands. It's 40, nuts. 40, 45 is generous, man. Yeah, it's <laughs> nuts. It's nuts. New Yorkers just completely flipped out about this. It's great. I, yeah. I, I, I think it's fair to mention, and you know, not to jump in, but not only is it so cool for New Yorkers and, and anybody from out of town, but I, I, the coolest thing about this to me is that it is a festival. It's not a competition. Right. And, and for the barbecue, for the pitmasters, it's like the best gathering of the tribe 
anywhere, you know, because you're not competing. And it, and it's like the pitmasters have this interaction. Um, I, you know, we missed it last year and we missed it so bad. But, you know, over the years, it, it has just come to be this, um, you know, community thing that is so important. And I think that resonates with the people who come and, and eat. You know, it's it's just it's a cool vibe. It, it completely. And I mean, I could see it. I was there the Friday night before a couple of years ago and just see everybody. It was like friends catching up. And yeah, it's the arrival. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the cocktail party. It's Friday night's a cocktail party. bottles yeah. of moonshine yeah. opened up and beer getting delivered and cigars being smoked and other things. And no, and everyone's up all night because that's kind of how you have to do this. Mm-hmm. It's just the most one. And you're in the most, you know, metrop- metropolitan city in the country, in the middle of it, in a park. And it's just like, whoa, it's like time stops for a couple of days there. It's great. It does. I think the, the people, like, like he said, the, the people really feel it when they come to the event because the pitmasters are having so much fun. How can you not have yeah. fun? Even yeah, if you totally. have to wait a little yeah. bit. Like it, that, that kind of energy is what drives the whole event. And, yeah. and it's not expensive. I mean, it's, it's 9 it's 10 11 bucks a plate. I best mean, barbecue in America comes to Manhattan, and if you're not there, if you're around town and you're not there the next two days, you're an idiot. Because it's coming. It, on Monday, they're gone, and Saturday and Sunday, it's just full on. It's, yeah. it's as good as it gets. Can, uh, um, Liz, is... Um, I'm going to do some housekeeping. Ryan's here? Okay. So we're going to do a quick spot. I want to thank you guys for coming in. You're all busy. You can stay if you want for the next segment. I've got Ryan Sutton, who is the food critic for Eater, um, the New York high-end version of it. He'll be in the studio with me next. Uh, and a big fan of Hometown Barbecue. And a big fan of Hometown <laughs> Barbecue. Re- a very recent review called it The Best. We'll see about that. We'll talk to him about that when he gets in here. Guys, thanks for coming in so much. Yeah. Okay. My thanks, guests. Man. Thank you. Come see us. <laughs> I will. See you tomorrow. My guests have been Daniel Vaughn, Texas Barbecue, Tim Love, Restaurateur, and Drew Robinson up from Alabama. Thank you all. I'll see you Saturday at some point. Be well. Take care. Quick spot. We'll be right back with Ryan Sutton. So if you want to make a great tomato sauce, where do you start? You start with great canned tomatoes. And what are the best? What's the gold standard? What are the best Italian restaurants use, you think? San Marzano tomatoes from southern Italy. You know, I've heard of San Marzano tomatoes, loved them, heard the whole legend thing, knew they were delicious, but I wanted to go visit the region. So sometime back, I don't know, 06, 07, we went to San Marzano in the middle of the packing season in August. They've got a really long growing season. Starts early spring, April, May, and runs all the way through October because the weather down there is beautiful. 
beautiful. You're along the coastline of uh, Naples there in the shadows of Mount Vesuvius. And these are really small family farms, really small, like a half an acre, an acre apiece. And that's how they make a living is harvesting these tomatoes. But what makes them great is the typicity of everything, the style of the tomato. It's kind of a long tomato with a really thin skin, super fleshy, super sweet tasting off the vine. Uh, we can Cento San Marzano tomatoes in the prime of the season, which is August. They just slow production down, handpick everything. Those little basil leaves, yeah, they're all put in there by hand as well. Uh, it is the best canned tomato I've ever had, and you're going to love them too. There's a reason chefs love these things. They're San Marzano authorized from the beginning. The factory gets inspected every year. Hey, you want to make great tomato sauce at home? Start with great tomatoes. Cento San Marzano. That's what I use. Hey, folks, Mike Calameco here. Years back when I had my own restaurant, I had to figure out what kind of oils to use, you know, try to make money in the restaurant business. So, uh, you know, the most expensive oil wasn't the choice, but I had to use an oil that was great, an oil that I would use at home and also for my customers. Came upon... Colavita olive oil, um, which to this day still stands head and shoulders above everybody in that extra virgin category in the supermarket shelves. So much of the extra virgin category is dominated by labels that sound like they're Italian. You know, they end with an O or something like that. But the truth is they're tank farm blends that come out of Italy, but what's in the jar or the can is oils from all over the world that are just bought on price. It's commodity oils. Uh, Colavita is the only one that's an extra virgin that's 100% Italian origin traceable. It's a great company. They really built their brand on the U.S. market. They get the U.S. market. So if you're looking for a super extra virgin olive oil, use the one that I've been using for years on my table at home and in my restaurants, wherever I was hanging my chef's toque. And that would be Colavita extra virgin. True Italian, great oil. So my first trip to Portugal was 2013. It was a wine trip. A bunch of us flew over and toured the country top to bottom. Fell in love with the place. The food, the wine, the scenery, everything. Had to come back, which I did in 14 to film. And this time, eight days in country, top to bottom again. Food, wine, surfing, what's not to love? If you've never been to Portugal, it's an extraordinary place. Buffered on one side by the Atlantic Ocean, you've got great seafood, great wines growing in all those regions. You go a little inland, you've got more great more great food, incredible wine country. Of course, Port is the birthplace of Port's up the Douro. But my takeaway was, I thought I'd had a lot of varietals. I could keep a list of 130, 135 varietals I've had over my life. Portugal has 250 of its own indigenous wine varietals. And they're killer good. A lot of them growing there for centuries. It has some of the oldest viticulture in Europe. Uh, the sparkling wines from the Bihada, the great reds coming down south from those regions. The, it, what's not to love? Crisp whites, beautiful full-bodied reds, port wine, sparkling wine. So if you're not familiar with the wines of Portugal, next time you spot by at your local wine store, ask about them. I love them. I'm drinking a lot of them these days, and I think you will too. This is Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Hey, folks. Welcome back. Mike Calameco here. We have Ryan Sutton in the house. He's been on the show before. Ryan was, before he was the food critic, the New York food critic of record for Eater. He was at Bloomberg doing much the same thing. Um, he does great work, covers the New York food scene, along with Robert Seitzema, an old, old friend who does, I don't think anybody can hold a candle at what, Ro- what Robert's done covering the ethnic diversity of this city from day one at the Village Voice and now continuing at Eater. But, and I haven't gotten him. Would you let him know? I'd love to get him on the radio at some point. Uh, I would love I've invited to him. I have like an email address. We used to be, I used to bump into him in the West village where he still lives and i used to but I, now now i don't see him on the street like i did but i'd love to get him in here i'll Not make it this, happen this, this, the next so 
Talk about what you've been doing, and actually talk, bring it up. So you, so Chang, David Chang, the Chang Dynasty, that David Chang, opened up a new place, and you and Robert reviewed it like two minutes after it opened. It was an instant review. You know, it's funny. You know, the old or the new Momofuku Co. I gave it, uh, which cost about one hundred and seventy-five dollars per person. It's David Chang's tasting menu concept uh, in New York. Uh, I gave it about five months before proper review. Uh, it needed five months to get there, and I eventually gave it a four-star review, uh, and rightly so. That said, for a fast, casual concept where everyone's going to eat it immediately, we decided to give it a little bit less time. It opened yesterday. <laughs> the doors were open at 11 o'clock, and we had our review up and published, I believe, by... 2 p.m. That's too funny. Which that's, is a, that's a first. Which is a three-hour turnaround. It's pretty quick. We didn't give Alex Dupac a whole lot of time either. Both Robert and I reviewed his Empeon Al Pastor. It's the cheapest of Alex Dupac's three Mexican concepts, and I believe we gave that 24 hours. This we gave three hours, uh, which is which is the shortest of them all. And it's 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 important that we got there fast because this is the type of place where people are not going to wait for uh, you know Pete Wells and Adam Platt and Ryan Sutton and Robert Sietzema to opine on it eight months later. They're going to go there immediately because the barrier to entry is so low. The chicken sandwich is $8, uh, a little bit more expensive than other chicken sandwiches. A Chick-fil-A fried chicken sandwich is going to cost you about, uh, oh, around $3.50 in New Jersey or at the NYU location in New York. Um, <laughs> but it's about the going rate, $8, for a higher-end chicken sandwich. If you go to, say, Hill Country uh, fried chicken, it'll cost around, I think, seven seventy-five, And I think there's a, a seven fifty chicken sandwich, uh, if my math is right, and it usually is, at uh, Blue uh, ribbon uh, fried chicken. And so we have a high-end fried chicken sandwich, and we have, and I think this is the importance of, this is the, the fast casual space. So it's not just David Chang that's getting into it. We've also had Danny Meyer. He calls it fine casual. We all know Shake Shack, the billion-dollar burger chain. We have Brooks Headley, the pastry chef at Del Posto, getting to the fast casual space with uh, his superiority vegetarian burger. And we also have Mark Ladner of Del Posto getting into this space as well with his gluten-free pasta flyer. And what's what's so important about this space is that it's really bridging a, a gap. Uh, we have a lot of people across our, our great fruited plain in America. We have a lot of people who don't want to spend 50 to 60 to $70 to eat at a sit-down restaurant. Uh, and so this is bridging the gap between uh, fast food dining, uh, casual, super casual dining like Applebee's and TGI Fridays, uh, and the higher end fine dining that uh, a lot of us go to in New York. It, you, know, you go to Applebee's, you can get like a, I think a two or three course meal for like $15. And so we're, we're trying to bridge the gap between that type of dining and, and fine dining or, or casual dining. And the, the, the fine casual space, as Danny Meyer call, uh, calls it, is really helping to bridge that gap. And, and the more we can get Americans to, to get out of their Applebee's, to get out of their McDonald's, and to eat at fast casual places like Fuku or, or Pasta Flyer when it's established, and to get them to A, pay more for food, B, eat better food, C, eat food that's hopefully humanely uh, sourced, uh, and D, uh, to eat at places where people are hopefully better compensated than at the fast food restaurants, then we've achieved a great thing. That's why this is, this is not just a chicken sandwich. This is about the future of food in the United States of America. Well, that's a, that's a bold statement. It, it's, all I can tell is it's... it's we're we're lucky to have it in New York, and you on your chicken sandwich list. I thought the Root and Bone Man had a killer ch- chicken thigh sandwich on some kind of house made biscuit that was just so slammingly good with house made pickles. And I mean that was that was like an eight or nine dollar like gift from heaven. Yeah, it's and and they do uh, in addition to the chicken sandwich. I, I think Root and Bone. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, and, and this is. 
it's not really about right or wrong. It's 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 completely subjective who has the best fried chicken in New York. I think Root and Bone wins hands down with a little bit of an edge over pies and thighs. But I, I think Root and Bone takes it because what they do is special over there. Uh, they take a little bit of a, a dry, dehydrated lemon power, and it yeah. really adds a bit of zest, and it, it cuts through the richness of that fried chicken. They but do the, everything. They get the tea brine for 24. I mean, he's there's so many steps before that chicken goes in that fryer. And then and – then, like you were saying, so he tea brines it overnight, then whatever his breading is, his breading is, flour, some blah, 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 goes into a pressure fryer just like KFC, which is a, a neat touch. And then as if that wasn't enough, you're right, he, he takes these lemons, cuts them paper thin, puts them on a sill plat, dries them out, powders them with salt, and creates this like little lemony, salty deliciousness that he sprinkles on all of them. It's almost like having the uh, coating of a Sour Patch Kid on your chicken, yeah. and against all odds, it absolutely works. Of course, the Fuku Fried Chicken is a little bit different. It's spicy in the, in the style of an old-school KFC spicy wing. It's really crunchy. It also has a beautiful layer of fat running through the side, so it gives it this gummy chewiness that's evocative less of... It's evocative less of a McDonald's-style chicken sandwich, and it recalls more a, uh, a the neck meat uh, from uh, a yakitori joint, such as Tori Shin, a Japanese-style <laughs> yakitori joint, where the, the, it's, it's not so much about super funky poultry flavor um, that you get at a high-end restaurant, and it's not so much about the, uh, the clean... The super clean poultry you'll get at, say, McDonald's, it's, it's a little bit chewier. It's a little bit, I want to say it's gnarly, but it definitely has more texture. It requires a little bit more work to eat than your run-of-the-mill chicken sandwich. Again, it, it, what David Chang is doing is he's taking a familiar flavor profile, the the KFC-style spicy chicken, and with that added gummy textural component, he's just slightly pushing your average eater out of her comfort zone. And that's why I think it's so important and delicious, because it you taste like you're eating uh, like this kind of slightly gnarly, in a good way, chicken thigh, instead of just eating this run-of-the-mill chicken breast. So you guys liked it? Uh, I loved it. Okay. As of two hours, uh, within the first two hours, they were serving sandwiches that were near perfect. Good. All right. Good news. Speaking of another restaurant that took a little longer to develop, down in my neighborhood. So we're going to be on Ludlow or Orchard, south of Delancey, in an area that's kind of becoming hot now, which is funny, because that was kind of like a no-man's land forever. It was kind of like Chinatown East, met the Lower East Side, but south of Delancey. It was like north of Delancey was one thing, south of Delancey was a whole other thing, and that corner was dead. Now you've got Mission Chinese, which is stupidly busy. I have actually not even gone in. I, I don't know when to go in. I was a bicycle. I flew home from France last week, Saturday night, got back from JFK at 11, didn't want to cook, so oh, I'll take a shower. I'm gonna go, I'll go to Mission. Midnight, I'll sit at the bar. No worries. Right? Idiot. Get on my bicycle. It's two minutes away. I'm biking up to the place. I'm like, what, is there a wedding going on? What's with all these people? There was a line of 50 people outside at midnight. I so I went it. into Chinatown and just ate some slop in Chinatown, biked back at 1 a.m., and the line was bigger. So anyway, so, so Mission's down there, but I'm not going to talk about Mission. Danny doesn't need my love. Um, the guys at Fung, too, talk about them. Because here's a restaurant with a really interesting pedigree. The chef worked at Per Se. he done fine dining. He's a Chinese-American. And he kind of came into the space. I think restaurants do need six months to a year, especially ambitious kinds of places, to just to get all the pieces to meld. But 
Really nice review from the Times. Really nice review from you. I love the beverage program and the front of the house partner. Talk about Fung Tu. Uh, Fung Tu, uh, you're right. Uh, I remember when it first opened uh, on Orchard Street uh, about a year and a half or thereabouts ago. And I just didn't eat very well. It, it, it was one of those restaurants, uh, unlike Fuku, which was, you know, uh, all cylinders uh, two hours into its existence. Fung Tu took a little bit longer. And it's, it's, it's funny how the bowl really got rolling immediately uh, out of nowhere. Both Pete Wells and, and I reviewed it on the same exact day, which you can expect as much for a new restaurant such as, who knows, No Rita or, or even the, the new Mo Fuku Ko or Mission Chinese. But we had no idea that we were both going to, I think, review Fung Tu on the same day. And they're doing a really lovely thing over there. Uh, I believe Jason Wu's the chef, as yeah. you said, uh, ex of per se. And what's so important about it, it's kind of a slightly more, slightly more high-end uh, counterpart to Mission Chinese. Mission Chinese has always been elevating, at least in their old location, uh, they're elevating the takeout style of Chinese-American cooking. And with their uh, new space at Mission Chinese, they're elevating kind of Chinese-American food in the banquet hall sense. It's a little bit more expensive. Feng Tu is elevating Chinese-American food in a completely different sense. They're doing it in more of the fine dining format, but at a fairly uh, casual space. So you can go in there and you can get uh, an a la carte meal, or you can go in and you can get, I believe, a, a seven or eight course tasting menu for around, I believe it's about $75. Could even be $65. Which uh, is a great buy. It's like Contra's, I think, five course for 55 Another great buy. I'd love to link those two restaurants because I'm big fans of what they're doing at Contra as well. I'm a big fan of what they're doing at Contra as well, and, and it's, I'm, I'm glad you linked it too because I, they're both on Orchard Street, yeah. and they're both serving... Uh, again, you can get a, an a la carte at Feng Tu, and you can get their beautiful. They have a they have a, a take on mapo tofu, where instead of uh, using tofu, they use uh, they use egg, which is really beautiful, and they throw a little, few chips on top. So it's kind of their cross between uh, chilalequis and and mapo tofu. But again, linking Feng Tu and Contra, there are there are two restaurants doing high end fare and doing set menus in kind of off the beaten track neighborhoods. And 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 the reason this is important is that you know. You know, when you think of a set menu venue, you typically think of, you know, Per Se or Momofuku Ko or the Chef's Table at Brooklyn Fair, where you're going to spend over $500 per, uh, for two people over the course of, you know, 30 courses in four hours. What Contra and Feng Tu are doing is they're bringing the Parisian style of neo-bistro cooking um, to New York, which is another way of saying uh, you don't have your white tablecloths, you don't have your, you know, you don't have your 80-course uh, wine pairing. You have a small stripped-down venue without tablecloths. Maybe it's kind of loud in an off-the-beaten-track neighborhood. Neighborhood serving usually anywhere from six to eleven courses for under a hundred dollars, yep. and the, the, I think two of the most important venues in that sense are, of course, Feng Tu and Contra. We also have Samia here in Brooklyn, which is doing a seventy-five dollar vegetable heavy menu, and we also have Thirty Acres in Jersey City, which is doing I, I think a ten, there yet. which That's... is doing a ten course menu for seventy-five dollars. So again, these are people who are trying to get a, not necessarily suburbanites, but neighborhoods who aren't used to eating set menus, and they're again they're 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 pushing pushing the envelope, pushing them outside of their comfort zones so we can, you know, bring fine dining uh, in a more... Um, in a more accessible way uh, to the, the four corners of, of our city and, uh, and our country. Because you're, you're not going to be able to open up a, a, a per se in you know, the middle of nowhere uh, in South Williamsburg. But you can do a $75 you 
you know, vegetable heavy restaurant that, that that will attract not just locals, but that will attract people uh, from from Manhattan to do the reverse commute, for lack of a better term. And I have to also give much credit. Everything you said, true. And, and I couldn't agree more. Uh, in, in specific to Fung Tu and Contra, whoever put together the wine program did a brilliant job. They've got really great wine lists and a lot of bio, a lot of organic, really well thought of, really sim- easy price points again. So this isn't like the painful, I'm going to go to a tasting menu and the food's going to be 100 and X. And then if I want to pair it with wines, that's another 100. And so, no, 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 no. This is like $55, $65, five, six course tasting menu. And then the wines by the glass are like, you know, 10, 12, 30, whatever. Like, super freaking reasonable. It's incredible how much the city has changed over the past 10 years. When you think of, you know, 2004 and the, and the birth of Per Se, and, 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 and a tasting menu was something expensive. It was a luxury, and it still is a luxury, but now it's becoming a luxury that's more excessive, yeah. that's more accessible uh, to the rest of the population in New York. Not, fine dining has become democratized, for, for lack of a better term. It's, it's, it's something that's not just for the, the bankers and for the media elites and for the uh, and for the food critics, it's something that you know a, a mom and pop from Long Island can come into the city and have again you know a, a seventy five dollar tasting menu at Samia and and not just be a short abbreviated menu that's that's you know the the lower form of something at a high end restaurant. It's you're getting the same thing that everyone else is is getting, and there are no supplements and it's and it's accessible to more people. And even a, a shout out to my old old friend Drew Nepar and uh, Marcus and Dan and uh, Jonathan Winterman. I think the menus at Batard, I haven't been there in a, a little bit, but they were like 55, 65, 75 for two, three, and four courses. I think they raised them each respectively by $4, which is still an extremely – so I think it's like fifty nine seventy nine and 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 thereabouts. So it's it's still – technically super accurate cooking. I mean it was on everybody's list of best opening of the year, best new restaurant in New York City, three stars. I think – I mean I, I've – everything I've eaten there has been so – so accurately cooked, and I think that Marcus is just one of those sort of chefs that was just waiting to blow up, and he has. Well, remember, he had two Michelin stars at yep. the chefs at, at, at Gordon, Gordon Ramsay, yep. and so it's no surprise that he earned his single Michelin star when uh, he opened up Batard uh, with Drew Print. and, you know, who knows? Maybe he could be on track for two stars. Uh, well, my, not my own personal favorite restaurant. It's very classic, but I it, 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 it warms my heart that the space has stayed within the Drew Nieprin family, yeah, that the fact that Drew Nieprin was, you know, one of the original kings of Tribeca. He went from Montrachet to Corton uh, to Batard. So the fact that, you know, he has, he has kept the space and made it work uh, to a more or less extent in each of those three iterations, I think that that bodes well for the future of fine dining in New York. And again, getting back to the Contra Fung 2 com- comparison, yes, Batard is a place where you can have fine dining at a, a more accessible fashion than used to be able to pass. Remember, Corton, the last restaurant, was like $115 or $155. So yeah, they and very they, stuffy and very formal and tablecloths and very quiet. It was almost like one of those paint. Like you, if you went there and had fun, you felt like you were standing out. Right. So you remember you went from this poly rent, and by the way, that was one of my favorite restaurants in New York, Corton. Yeah. But it's a huge change. It went from an avant-garde, uh, like eleven to seventeen or whatever course tasting menu restaurant, and they changed it, and they they essentially they they lowered the price and they and they reduced the course count. Uh, and if, if if that's what's happening in our city, if we're going from more expensive to less expensive at certain restaurants, then uh, that's just a way of, of uh, that's just another way of saying that the, the restaurant 
auteurs are, are really looking out for the, the common woman and, and man in terms of getting them excited and interested in high-end dining, because you, you certainly are getting high-end dining at, at Batard, probably one of the city's best fried chickens, and under the guise of a schnitzel. It's not <laughs> veal schnitzel, it's chicken schnitzel, so it's fried chicken, it's pounded, it's salted, and it's juicy and absolutely delicious. So it's, you know, coming full circle. Started off with the, the fuku fried chicken that's spicy that costs $7, and ending with the set menu, right. schnitzel, chicken schnitzel at Batard. Uh, it's either way, you're going to win, regardless of which one you, you order, expensive or cheap. Ryan Sutton, always a pleasure. Keep up the great work. We'll get you back in next fall, early, when I, when I redo this, when I relaunch this in um, October, because by then you'll have a whole bunch of new stuff to talk about. Always a pleasure to have you out. Thank you. Are you going to go to the Big Apple Barbecue this weekend or no? Uh, I won't be. I have a lot of work to do this weekend, but okay. uh, I'll, I'll be around. Okay. Be well. Take care. Folks, I'll report back from the Big Apple Barbecue next week. I'm going to go on Saturday and eat as much as I can, which is probably only going to be a few hours worth. I'll see you next week with more fun guests for a couple of more food talks before I disappear for the summer. Take care. See you next week. Thanks. Bye-bye. Listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.